We're turning today to the book of of 1 Samuel, and we're going to attempt to get through uh, 1 Samuel um, chapters 1 to 7 in in the next few weeks. So let's read, let's pick up the reading, um, and we'll read a a chunk of it, and then we'll we'll come back and read a bit more um, later on. So we're going to start at 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. You'll, you'll pick up this story pretty quickly. It's a story that tells itself. It's a, um, it's a great story. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and wouldn't eat. And her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Not sure how well that went down. (laughs) Once, when they'd finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. And as she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk, and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman who is deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. And Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. And she said, May your servant find favour in your eyes. And then she went away and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. And early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, And the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And she named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Let's pray and then we'll get started. We'll come back to verse 21 a little bit later on. Father God, you're the God who speaks. You're the God who hears. You're the God who answers prayer. 
And we pray this morning we will hear you speak through your word. And as we pray, we pray you will hear. We pray you will hear and answer and change history. Whether it's our personal history, whether it's national history, whether it's history to the end of time. We ask that you would change it according to our prayers. Because it is in your nature to do so. And we glory in it, in the name of Christ. Amen. So we're going to spend a few weeks in the Old Testament. So three weeks of Samuel, um, two weeks back to the Statement of Faith with Rob over half term, uh, three weeks of Samuel coming back. Why? Well, firstly, it's kind of where we've got to. Over the years, we've been uh, in Genesis. You might not remember that. It's a long time ago. Looked at creation. We've been through Exodus. We've looked at liberation, the way God rescues. Uh, only took us through Leviticus. Legislation, you might say, the, the law and how it points forward to Christ. Been through Joshua and conquest. How do you take hold of all that God has promised you? And uh, lastly, we, we were in Ruth and just seeing how that character of God and covenant of God works out. Uh, in, a, in an ordinary, everyday kind of life. <clears throat> so it's kind of where we've got to. But that's another reason. Samuel uh, follows on from the book of Judges. So although in our Bibles we've got Ruth in between, um, in the Hebrew Bibles, Ruth was, was later on. So time-wise, Joshua and Judges butt up uh, against one another. So Joshua two, uh, sorry, Judges 2 opens like this. It says that Joshua died at the age of 110... And after they'd buried him in the land of his inheritance, oh sorry, after that they buried him in, in the land of his inheritance. And after that, a whole generation, uh, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord or what he'd done for Israel. And then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. So Judges begins with that. After, after, after Joshua, they forget forget what the Lord's done. And at the end, it says this, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Does that kind of sound familiar to you? Everyone did as they saw fit. Everyone says, my truth is my truth. And, uh, and you can't comment on it. That's precisely the world we live in. An era where everyone did as they saw fit. So it's a story that's against a background of a time very much like ours. But most of all, we keep coming back to the Old Testament because we find Jesus there. And it gives us a broader and a deeper picture of Jesus, of who he is and what he's done. Jesus tells us this explicitly. He said it twice to, um, in Luke 24. He says it once to the, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He says to them, this is what I told you. When I was still with you, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. So Jesus tells them and then he tells the disciples uh, again when they gather together um, that the Old Testament, split into the three major divisions, the law, the prophets and the Psalms, speaks about him. So we're going back to the Old Testament to get a deeper understanding of Jesus. How? Well, I want to give you Two tools, as it were, for understanding the Old Testament. Um, don't know kind of why we haven't covered this before, but maybe we've just not really ever, ever got this far. And that is that Jesus is our prophet, our priest, uh, and our king. 
This is not something new. Um, it's, it's been the Protestant even evangelical understanding of Jesus um, since, since way back. It goes, um, you, you can find it in, in numerous places uh, in church history. So I'm going to take you back for, for just one moment. This is um, from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, um, which is written sometime in, in the 1640s. Um, and a catechism is simply a series of questions and answers um, to teach you key things that you need to know about God and the Christian faith. So the Westminster Shorter Catechism is a very famous one um, from Protestant church history. If, if, you want, if after looking at this you think, oh, I'd like a bit of that, you can find it online, or you can find something much simpler. You can go on your phone and get an app, and you can look for New City Catechism, um, and that's um, Tim Keller's uh, church, um, and that'll give you a shorter catechism. You get it um, in, in those usual places. So Westminster Shorter Catechism, even though it says it's shorter, it's quite a long one. Um, but here are some questions, questions and answers. Um, what offices does Christ fulfill as our Redeemer? Question 23. Uh, it happens to be question 23. Don't worry about that. Christ as our Redeemer fills the offices of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king in his states both of humiliation, in other words, while he was here on earth, and exaltation now that he's in heaven. How does Christ fill the office of a prophet? Christ fills the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our complete salvation. How does Christ fill the office of a priest? Christ fills the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself to God as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God and in making constant intercession for us. Question 26, how does Christ fulfill Christ fill the office of a king? Christ fills the office of a king in making us his willing subjects, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. So, if that appeals to you, go and search, search it online. Uh, if you want something simpler, go to the New City Catechism. You can get it for the kids. I meant to bring, I've got a tiny little book, um, which is a kind of a first catechism, questions and answers for, um, for kids. But the bottom line of that is that Jesus is our prophet priest and king. So when we come to the Old Testament, we look at what the prophets did and we say what they did, but imperfectly, Jesus does as the perfect prophet. Um, What the priest does, albeit imperfectly, Jesus does perfectly. And what a king does in the Old Testament, albeit imperfectly, Jesus does perfectly for us. And we'll see that. At least we'll start to see that in the book of 1 Samuel. But I want to give you one other tool. Okay, so hang in there. Uh, And once we've got the tools uh, together, we'll we'll go digging. Um, Old Testament stories have a meaning on a number of levels. They have a meaning at the kind of human, local level. So that's how we read the Old Testament usually. We look at the the story and say, what what happened with these people and with God? What is God doing with these people? It's the local story. There's a story at a national historical level because the Old Testament then is the story of of the nation uh, of Israel. What is God doing, not just with a local person, what is God doing with his people? And then as as a cosmic, and by that I mean universal, um, all-time level, because the Bible is not just Old Testament, New Testament, but we can ask, what is happening in this story that applies to God's master plan of salvation from, the, from creation to the end of time when he makes everything new? Do you get that? No, clearly not. Okay, but hang, it's, uh, 
grab the idea and we'll see if we can apply it, uh, apply it as we go along. At all those levels, whether it's a, a little human story, whether it's a, a story that impacts on the, the nation of Israel, whether it's a, uh, a story about God's big picture salvation, the Lord's character is constant across all those different levels. So, okay, let's look at the, the, the bit we've got, um, 1 to 19. It's a local human story. I, I think you've, you've got the picture, haven't you? Um, Elkanah, fairly well-off um, kind of guy. He's got enough money to support two wives. Um, he's got two wives for an unhappy reason, because his first wife, whom he loves, that is Hannah, that means favoured, she can't have any children. Um, so he's married a second wife, she's called Penina, um, and she, that m- um, name means fruitful. So you can see this is, this is a situation um, bound for tension, isn't it? Um, he's, he's a religious man, keeps going up to the festivals, uh, to the priests, we'll come back to them another time, for the celebration. Penina, we read, and all her sons and daughters got meat. Okay, it's... Um, you, you think he, he's got to come with a load of sacrifices, with cartloads, shed loads of stuff uh, for Penina and, and all her children, but Hannah... And this is a difficult verse. You could translate it a couple of different ways. Um, Either she gets a double portion because she's loved, um, but you can actually translate it the opposite way and say she just gets a single portion. Because he's being scrupulously right. It's it's just a difficult verse in the Hebrew, but but either way, the contrast is there uh, against the fruitfulness of Peninnah, and Hannah and her single portion, or possibly her double portion of meat, but it's still nothing to all the animals they've had to drag behind them for Penina's kids. Penina keeps rubbing it in. She keeps provoking. She keeps teasing. We read about Elkanah and his, his attempt to kind of um, make Hannah feel okay. Not sure that's going to succeed. But on this one year, Hannah gets up. She leaves the family table. She goes to pray near the tabernacle. She makes anguished prayer for a child. And she vows that if God gives, gives her a child, she will give the child back to him. And like Samson, no razor will be used on his head. Eli looks on from his lounger. Okay, from his lazy boy. Um, I say that based on what we'll read later, later on. All he can see is her mouth moving and uh, assume she's drunk. He chastises her, but she stands up for herself. And it's just instructive if you read this again to see what she says. She says, I'm deeply troubled. I'm deeply troubled. She says, I am pouring out my soul um, to the Lord. And she says, I am praying out of my great anguish and grief. And Eli offers her a blessing, and obviously she has this year a sense that she's been heard somehow, and, and she goes away in peace um, and eats. And she goes home, and in due course, the prayer is answered and she becomes pregnant. So it's a little local human story at one level. Hannah's prayer is answered. Childlessness is great grief. And if you've experienced that uh, or, or any shadow of that, you will know. But Hannah's prayer is answered. And actually, at a human level, we can just look at this and say, what, 
why, why are her prayers answered? And I think there are some characteristics of her prayer that are just uh, characteristic of answered prayer, basically. She comes to the throne of grace, actually. She's got up from the table, and her family situation, she's moved away, and she's come um, outside the tabernacle. She's come, to the, she's come to the place which symbolizes God's presence. She's come to the throne of grace. She's drawn near. She's come through sacrifice. The sacrifice has been made. She knows she's not worthy to come on her own merit. And so she's done what we would call Hebrews 4. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Confidence in the sacrifice so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So she pours out her grief. Notice that? She pours out her grief. She starts with how she feels. I know so often we talk about prayer and we talk about acts, A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. And then the Bible just kind of blows that away um, on on so many occasions. It's it's a helpful thing to remember. But Hannah doesn't do that. She doesn't come with adoration. She comes and she she pours out uh, her grief to the Lord. And then she asks for what she wants. Keith was really helpful about prayer. If you get to listen to that, um, have a go. Uh, Sunday night, and he said, prayer is simply asking God for things. Prayer is simply asking God for things. We make it way too complicated. And actually, Tim Chester, there's a good, um, good Tim Chester book on this. He says, prayer is not a technique we need to master. It is pouring out your soul to the Lord. Prayer is not a technique we need to master. It is pouring out our soul to the Lord. So I wonder whether somebody could just grab a window or two. I'm quite warm. And while, while you're doing that, let me just recommend... A couple of books to you. Uh, um, Tim Chester is always good value. One Samuel for you, but not much on the first chapters one to seven. Um, this, is, this is brilliant. Dale Ralph Davis, um, commentary uh, on one Samuel. And one of the reviews on the back says, this is the best, expository cam- the best expository commentary I've read in many years. Now, this is the first funny commentary I think that I've ever read. Okay, so... Recommend that to you. That has blown me away. Back to Hannah. So prayer is not a technique. It's uh, pouring out your heart to the Lord. She comes in desperation. Desperation and powerlessness are fruitful ground for answered prayer. Pour it out. Pour it out. Bring the ragged words uh, of what you want to the Lord and keep bringing it. In the answer of it, she looks for the Lord's glory and not just her own. How many prayers are unanswered because they're prayed with the wrong motives? So James says, when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. God's not interested really. He is interested in your pleasures, but he's not interested in simply giving you your pleasures. And Hannah knows that, and she says that if you give this child, which will undo my shame... It it is a grief to me. I will give him back to you. She was persistent. We read in the text, verse 12, she kept on praying. But actually, I think we can read into this a prayer that was many years in the making and years in the praying and at least nine months in the the answering, obviously. But it may have been um, considerably more than that. What is the timescale of your persistence in prayer? Does, does persistence mean I'll pray this week and next week? Does persistence mean I'll, 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 I'll pray for a season? 
And then so often summer comes or Christmas comes or Easter comes and you forget about it. Not Hannah. This is persistence uh, on a, a timetable of years. The stuff that you are bothered about, you will pray for. Stuff that you are bothered about, you will pray for for a long time. Stuff that you are bothered about, you will not stop praying for, and the Lord will answer. Eventually. She comes away with with peace, like Philippians 4, 6, and 7. I'm not going to read that. And then she waits for an answer. Where will we apply this Jesus, prophet, priest, and king thing? She's come to the priest. And she's come via the sacrifice. And we come via Christ, who is your priest. He stands there uh, and intercedes with God for you. And he is, of course, your sacrifice. That has paid the price for all your rebellion and has opened the door for you to come um, to God's throne of grace. But we learn this about the character of God. God loves to help the troubled, the powerless, and the humiliated. Great, great quote from that commentary I showed you. God's tendency is to make our total inability his starting point. Our hopelessness and our helplessness are no barrier to his work. Indeed, our utter incapacity is often the prop he delights to use for his next act. This matter goes beyond the particular situations of biblical barren women. We are facing one of the principles of Yahweh's modus operandi. It's one of the principles of the way God's work. When his people are without strength, without resources, without hope, without human gimmicks, then he loves to stretch forth his hand from heaven. Quotes in the Bible study for those of you in home groups. So it's a local story, but it's a local story with a, uh, a national dimension. Something is going to happen here uh, in, in the big story of of Israel as a nation. Otherwise, I guess it wouldn't be in the Old Testament. So let's pick up the story from uh, chapter 1, verse 21. So she's had the baby. She had baby Samuel. And when her husband Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, after the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord and he will live there always. Being weaned might take, say, three years in the Hebrew context. Do what seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. Stay here until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she'd weaned him. And after he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And when the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I shall give him to the Lord, for his whole life he shall be given over to the Lord." And he worshipped the Lord there. Okay, so next time there's a sacrifice, if we go back to the PowerPoint, Hannah stays home. 
She's not going to go until uh, Samuel is weaned. And she says, I'm giving the boy back to the Lord. And then Elkanah says a funny thing. He says, okay, but may the Lord make good his word. What? What does that mean? Where was, where was the promise of God? Well, what, what word is he talking about? And this is where we see the, the bigger story start to kick in. Because the Lord has promised to bless his people Israel and make them a blessing to the world. So Elkanah is referring back to the bigger promises that, that God has made uh, to Israel. His covenant promise to bless them and make them a blessing. So effectively, he is saying... Yes, you give him back to the Lord, but I hope the Lord remembers that he promised to be good to Israel. And maybe he's saying, and, and may he make use of our boy. So for Elkanah, I, th- I think the issue is, here is a nation, here is a nation in crisis. How, how would you feel about sending your three-year-old son um, to be trained uh, for a priesthood um, when God seems to have, have abandoned the country. You're feeling a little bit hopeless. So Elkanah says, yes, send him, but please, God, well, at this point in time, will you bring us back to the Lord so this little boy's ministry means something um, and does something in the wider context. And the section finishes with this little thing, he Worship the Lord there. What does that mean? Who's the he? That's got to be Samuel, I think. He worshipped the Lord there. And Samuel is this little faithful worshipper now in the midst of an unfaithful priesthood. We'll find out more about them later on. Hophni and Phinehas and, uh, and Eli. He's a little faithful worshipper in a, in a country which has gone off, off the rails. He's a little faithful worshipper in a place where Prophecy seems to have died out. And he's a little faithful worshipper in a place where there's no king. So I think that sentence kind of says, watch this space. Because actually the Lord is remembering his covenant promises. Because that's his nature. He's a promising God. He's a God who keeps his promises. What he's actually doing is he's, he's raising up a prophet... The answer to Hannah's prayer for a child is becoming an answer to the prayers of the country, at least those who are faithful. Will you please speak to us again? Will you please rescue us? Can we hear your word again? And the clue to that is in the circumstances. In the Old Testament, God, have you, not, have you noticed how often he uses barren women? Women who can't have children to be uh, the mother's of, of his special people who advance his purposes. Sarah was, was 90 odd. Rebecca was barren. Rachel was barren. Samson's mother was barren. When God wants to raise up a new person who will do something important for him, comes to the people who've fallen off the bottom of the graph in terms of importance. And he comes and uses the people for whom this thing is impossible. 
And actually, there are parallels then going through into the New Testament. Um, Elizabeth. Remember Elizabeth? Um, Jesus' aunt. Couldn't have children. And then she has a child miraculously. Elizabeth is like the new Hannah. And so John the Baptist is like the new Samuel. And that tells us something. Samuel is the prophet who's paving the way for a king, as John the Baptist is the prophet who paves the way um, for the true and final king. So ultimately, Jesus is our prophet, even though we haven't seen that in the story yet. God is raising up a, a prophet. And Jesus is born to somebody even more powerless than a barren wife. He's born to a virgin, somebody who doesn't have a, even have a husband. Or at least isn't making children through the normal means. But it's also a kind of cosmic all-time story. Let me see if we can work this out. Turn to, um, turn to the prayer in your Bibles. I'm not going to put this on the screen. Um, so page 272, chapter 2. And actually, we see all these three levels come out um, in, in this prayer. So Hannah has taken the little Samuel and, and left him there, and Samuel is worshipping, um, worshipping the Lord, bless him, as a little child. And then Hannah prayed and said this. And this prayer works out on these three levels. At this personal level, she says, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn and my strength, my reputation is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies. For I delight in in your deliverance. So her response is to come back to God and praise him for what he's done for her. And she says, there is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. And she has a word for those who look on. Don't keep talking so proudly. Or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows. And by him deeds are weighed. So she prays on a personal level, thanks God what she's done. But she also sees um, there's something working out uh, on the national level. She says the bows of the warriors are broken. But, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. What God has done for me is this principle of God using the powerless people and, and turning the power structures of the day upside down. And if he's doing that for me, he will do it on a national level um, for these people, for, for Israel, who are at such a low place. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry are hungry no more. God turns things upside down. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has many sons and pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. It's the Lord, this is our Lord, who turns things upside down. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and makes them inherit a throne of honour. So because the character of the Lord is constant across these levels, he's done this for Hannah because it's his nature. So he will do this 
um, for, the, for the nation of Israel. But there will a time when he will do this across the whole earth. We pick up in verse 8. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So you can see, even in Hannah's prayer, she's got all these three perspectives in mind. This is my God. He turns things upside down. He does things um, for the powerless and he throws them over. He does that for me. He does that for the nation. One day he's going to do it for the whole world. So now is the moment, isn't it, to be on his side, um, to be right with him. Even if that means looking stupid for him, even if that means looking, trusting in the gospel, which that truth about him dying on a cross for our sin, which looks so weak and so silly. And yet one day it'll be flipped over and everything in the world will glorify Jesus in that gospel. And those who said, ha, what a stupid thing, will be made low. They'll be broken and they'll be silenced in the place of darkness. So Hannah prays to God through the priest, Eli, who gives a prophet, Samuel, who anoints a king, Saul, and then David. That's why it's a good book for looking uh, at Jesus as prophet, priest, and king, and remembering that he does perfectly what these guys do imperfectly. And that king, not Saul, but David, is the pattern, albeit a flawed one, pattern for an ancestor of God's true king, God's true prophet, God's true priest, God's true sacrifice, who is Jesus. So just to wrap up, where are you in the story? What are you desperate? What are you desperate for? Really easy, isn't it? Those things we're actually desperate for to suddenly um, discover actually we're trying to um, trying to realise them through our own means. So really, we're really stupid people sometimes. I speak for myself. That we, we, something we, we desperately want to see happen, and actually we just realise after a while, I've never actually taken this to the Lord. I'm just trying to work it out. Well, you have permission to come to the Lord desperately. Are you desperately praying? Something you're desperately praying for? Salvation of somebody in your family? Healing? Well, then come to Jesus because he is your priest. Stands before God and he's, he's offered a sacrifice. It was his own sacrifice of his life upon a cross. And if you trust it and stand upon it, then, then you're forgiven and God sends you his Holy Spirit. And then you come to Jesus. Come to the, come to the throne of grace. Pour out your story like Hannah pours out her story and ask for what you want. The Lord doesn't always give what you want. He doesn't always give it straight away. We've, and you see in the story of Hannah some of those keys to answered prayer. 
You have no way of knowing whether your prayer would have been answered or not unless you keep praying it. If you stop at some point, then how do you know it wasn't answered simply because you stopped too soon? Desperately praying, come to Jesus. Desperately wanting to hear. Hear the Lord. Well, Jesus is our prophet. He is your prophet. And you can hear him speak through, he is the word of God. That's what John calls him. And he speaks in God's word, the scriptures. Come to the scriptures. Because that is where, God, uh, that is where the word of God speaks. In God's word, if you're wanting to hear, come. Or maybe desperately confused. I think we're just shutting our minds now, aren't we, to what happens outside in politics and the B word. Okay. What is God doing? Well, it comforts us to remember that Jesus is our king. And our king is actually the king over everything. Our king is the king who knows everything. Our king is the king who knows how it will pan out because he is causing it to pan out according to his glory. And our king loves to turn over the structures uh, uh, and people of power. Maybe maybe that's what he's doing. Maybe he's turning them over and maybe they are suffering the humiliation. But he's a God who loves to use the weak and the powerless and the stupid. So there's hope for you and for me.